Welcome to The Fabric Podcast. As we dig into this dangerous book, the Bible. Yes, it's been dangerous in all the wrong ways over the years, but maybe, just maybe, it might be dangerous in a rich, challenging, hopeful kind of way in each of our lives too. Here's Greg Meyer. I want to kick off a season of us looking at this dangerous book. Yep, it's the Bible. Um, it has always been a dangerous book, and it is dangerous in two different ways. First of all, people have used it to hurt other people, like forever, to you know, beat them into submission. They have decided that this is what it means, and with the clout of it's the word of God, and bango, you can't argue with that. They have decided what it's supposed to be and what other, how other people are supposed to follow along with them and kind of created people in their own image. Might I snidely add to that, that when people do that, they very seldom are focusing overly too much on the verse, God is love. Now, that may um, be some of the coloring that you have in your own history that has altered your feelings and maybe relationship with the Bible, with this book. But frankly, that dangerous aspect of the book isn't only about you and you know, Uncle Roger at your family get-togethers. Have you ever heard of the Crusades? Spanish Inquisition, the Salem Witch Trials. There was this thing called slavery. There is this thing called slavery. There is the submission of women through history. All that to say is that when this dangerous book gets used that way, the danger of it can actually kill. Right? I mean, this isn't, it's not just an inconvenience. This is a problem. I guess, you know, just to be on the record, I am not in favor of that form of danger with this book, okay? And it's not where I want to be going here, but I do think it's really important to acknowledge. The other kind of danger that this book represents is that if we truly encounter it here, what is here, not as a measuring stick for ourselves or that we're going to put up against other people to decide whether they are right or perfect or uh, worthy or just plain good enough, but if we look at it for its heart, for, to hear its voice, to walk the journey that it's trying to describe, we discover something that can very well rock our status quo, that can break us open, that can give us new ideas, new hopes, new dreams, new ideas, that can help us let go of things we were never meant to carry and maybe to pick up some things that we never imagined we were capable of. You know, I'll say that's the kind of danger that I'm interested in, and I'll come clean and say that I'm hopeful I hope to put all of us at risk of that form of danger of this book. It is what happened to me. This book and its words, the world that it describes, the people, the community that has wrestled with it for so long have formed me in a way that I, that it, you know, has changed me. It, it's the reason I am here. It's the reason 17 years ago I decided to help begin this community. I want us to risk this danger for the power it can have in our own lives and then the power that it can have to maybe control some of the negative power that other people are using it for, the danger, and even maybe to begin correct some of the stuff that has been done improperly through this book. Yeah, I think that's a hope for us. So there is something sacred here, and I don't mean by that that, you know, that 
this is the word of God, meaning, you know, uh, God, God or the Holy Spirit whispered something in people's ears and they wrote it down, or that it is infallible, it's perfect, without error, no contradictions or anything like that. No, I don't mean that at all. But these words in this book are more than clever or just ancestral teachings or simply wise. There is something more here. It's a, it's a product of a three-stranded experience of people who lived with it, testing and wondering and shaping and sharing it for more generations than we can imagine. So if this book holds the word of God, I think it's because the third strand, that which is, I am who I am, um, God, however you know that third strand, it's because that third strand is found here, often indistinguishably woven in with the lives of the characters or with the writers or the world that it tries to describe. And it's also really important to say that this is not the only place that the word of God is found, all right? If God is what God is, then God is so big that the word oozes out of every crack and crevice in our world and it is found in every corner that we can imagine. It's too big to only be here. But speaking of God, I just got to pause there for a little bit. This is a, this is a pain. <laughs> Another part of my personal pitching mound is that I have trouble talking about what most of us you know, think of as God with the word God. The reason has little to do with the word itself, but what I sense people in general maybe have in their minds when they hear God, there are just too many cheap, unhelpful, even hurtful versions of, you know, that people have images of what people have out there. And that makes me end up kind of dancing around calling God, God, because because it's important to me that you know I've got something more expansive than some, uh, some supreme being sitting on a cloud somewhere, you know, meting out either justice or mercy to people. No, you know, it's got to be a lot bigger than that. Now, I know some of you have at least as big of a concept of God as I have, and you're perfectly comfortable using the word God, and that's fine. I'm not. I'm not, and I think there's reason for someone in my role to feel that way and to feel they need to be careful about what they're communicating and what they're, the image that they're trying to give to other people when they do what I do. So, so sometimes I'll say God, especially in the, uh, you know, as we talk about this dangerous book, it's, it, that's going to come up a lot, right? So sometimes I'm going to say it. Sometimes I'm going to say Yahweh, which is the Hebrew name of God, which is introduced in the Bible. It means I am who I am. In your Bibles, it's translated, I think, very poorly as the Lord, which has a completely different meaning or maybe that which is, or the third strand, or sometimes I get a call, God, God, you know, and that's okay. So just to kind of put that out here, let's get back to the dangerous book. So along with all the wonderful stuff that I was just saying about what this book is, another thing is it's damn hard to know how to read and to make any sense out of, you know? It just plain is. Shakespeare is hard to understand. Anybody agree with me on that? Shakespeare hard to understand? That is only 400 years old. It was written in English in a culture that is continuous to our own, and it's only one genre. Oh, well, okay, two, plays and sonnets. And yet we have trouble reading it. Now, the Bible is written over a period of over 1,000 years by, what, 60-some different people. The Old Testament, the Hebrew Scripture, the newest portions of it were written about 2,500 years ago. And the New Testament, which is the part of the Bible that was written at the time of Jesus and the early church, the newest parts are about 1,900 years ago. No one who wrote any part of the Bible knew they were writing part of the Bible, right? 
Uh, and most of them came from oral traditions that were hundreds and hundreds of years old before they were ever even ever written down. That just shows how far removed the Bible is from us by time. Just by time. Which means this is going to be hard to read and understand, right? And then consider language. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, which was no longer spoken after about 200 A.D., 200 years after the time of Jesus, and wasn't re-learned, reintroduced until the late 19th century, late 1800s. All right, the New Testament is written in Greek, familiar, but it's written in a form of Greek called Koine that was, that was stopped being used in about the 6th century. So there's some problems with that. And then there's culture, okay? A little different than our own. The cosmology of the people who wrote the Bible, their, meaning their perception of the world, how they viewed things, was significantly different. I mean, the normal person never moved or never traveled more than 20 miles from the place that they were born. They did not have technology to be able to see or communicate with a world that was beyond their fingertips. That needs to be remembered. Then there's these aspects of culture that we also can't overlook. To ask the Bible to be scientifically or historically accurate is just the wrong question. You've heard me say this a lot of times. It's just the wrong question. They did not have a concept of science that was like ours, or like we had 150 years ago, or like they had in the 12th century, or like we will have maybe in 100 years when we maybe won't respect or understand the this, this understanding of science that we have today. If they didn't have our concept of science, how can we expect what they write to scientifically match with the way we understand science right now? Frankly, for most of these writers, it wasn't even a category. Uh, likewise with history, and I mentioned this last week as well. To think that they were working with a concept of history like we do, with our sense of historical objectivity or accuracy of detail, is just not the way it was. Newspapers from 150 years ago, if you go back and read them, you will laugh at their attempts for accuracy and historical objectivity. I mean, even 150 years ago, we don't respect it. You can't imagine that somebody, you know, 1,500 years ago or 2,000 years ago would be matching it. Remember, these are people who are riding on goatskins with ink they made out of pulverized charcoal and a pen that was a hollow reed that they cut. So it's, it's, things are going to be different. A couple examples. Two creation stories. I touched on this a couple times today. Two creation stories, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. Completely different stories, telling how creation happened differently. The Bible puts them side by side. There are four Gospels, which are the books of the Bible that talk about the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, you would think, well, one covers the first seven years, the next one, the next seven. No, they all tell the whole story, and they all do it differently, and the Bible put them side by side. No attempt to iron out the contradictions or harmonize their messages. Just puts them side by side. Or, you ever hear the story of Noah and the Ark of the Flood? Okay, did you know there are two, two versions of it? And it doesn't even put them side by side. It just puts them back and forth. It just flip-flops back and forth between them. If you actually read it, yeah, you're going to find it. Why didn't it bother them? Because that kind of, that's not where their truth value was. Their truth value was in getting a message across. And if both of those stories get the message across and different aspects of it, they both need to be there. They didn't need to reconcile them. They didn't have to edit one out. They didn't have to harmonize them so they all look the same. That's the kind of stuff that we do. That's in our era. We would do that. They didn't have that problem. They weren't trying to do it. 
So, um, you know, our fabric mantra of a better question is essential to mining the value of these ancient writings. So questions like, did it really happen like that? Or is that true? Or are we supposed to, you know, do exactly what it says? Those are good questions to set aside and look for a better one. Like, what is that story trying to communicate? What did they understand about the world that they're trying to capture? And therefore, what might it mean for me today? Now, is that messy and subjective? Yes. And that's why we hold the Bible with humility, with wonder, and with openness to being surprised, rather than certainty and self-righteousness. And we keep in conversation about it and with it, rather than arguing until we decide who's right and who's wrong and, you know, divide up into our separate groups. Okay, so those are a lot of reasons why it's hard to read and it's hard to understand and hard to use responsibly, but don't give up. You can do this. You don't have to be a biblical scholar, a linguist, or an anthropologist to read the Bible. And a couple of reasons why. First of all, other people have done a lot of that work for you already, okay? It is available. You can find it and tap into it and let them do that. But find reputable sources. And there are some there, and you know, we can help share that, and you can figure some of those out as well. An example of that is like if you're wanting to read the Bible, there's this thing called the internet and two websites. There's Bible Gateway and Bible.com. And they both extraordinary ability to look at many different translations of the Bible together and stuff like that. It's great. Just don't click on the links, all right? But the resources, what they allow you to do with the text is just exactly what you need, right? So that's the kind of example of um, being careful about the expertise you tap into. You also don't have to do this on your own. And in fact, I really advise you not to. The Bible is never meant to be someone's personal thing that they carry with them. It's something that joins community. It's something that people wrestle with together and figure out. So, you know, do this with other people. Do it with your family. Do it with your friends. If you're in a, a fabric group, I mean, this is a place to talk about this stuff and wonder about it, right? And kind of along with that, don't worry about getting it all figured out. It doesn't work this way. This is something to live with. It's messy. It is not a manual. The material is deep with layers and layers of meaning within it that take time and repeated visits to unearth. Uh, you'll read a story for years and years and you'll come back to it later and you'll read it again and say, what? I never caught that before. I mean, that is how it's constructed. Finally, there are some tools that you can use to make this book accessible. And I actually think they're fun to use. They will use your experience, your creativity, your willingness to open up to what this book asks you to consider. And those tools are what I want to spend the rest of today talking about so that the rest of the weeks while we're doing this, talking about this dangerous book, we can more just apply and we can be looking at some of those fascinating aspects and some of those, you know, looking at stories and writings from the Bible. Okay, so these tools. The first one, I already gave it to you, and that is simply ask a better question. Ask a better question. So when should I ask a better question? Other than always, which is probably the true answer, but maybe not as directive as it could be. When, when do you get stuck? Like, I'm reading this and I'm just stuck. Maybe the, the question that I brought it to just seems to be bringing me into a, you know, a tough place. Or, a, or, or maybe you're just, you know, something doesn't feel right. Maybe the question that you're bringing to it, that you're asking it to respond to, isn't the one that it's really ready to do. Or... Uh, maybe you're just looking for more. You know, so maybe you've had a question, it felt like a good question, and so, but 
that's okay. Try another question and see what it does. So the better question, that's a big thing. We're going to have lots of examples of that in these coming weeks. Let me give you one example. Did Jonah really get swallowed by a whale and stay inside for three days and get carried across the ocean to the city of Nineveh and get spat out? Or is that maybe not the right question to ask to that text? And that's actually a perfect segue to the next tool I want to talk about. And that is, don't get distracted by the vehicle. Pay attention. Focus on the cargo, all right? Don't get distracted by a vehicle. Pay attention to the cargo. So what do I mean by that? Doesn't everybody love to see a UPS truck pull up in front of their house? I mean, isn't that the greatest thing? I, I love UPS trucks because that, that's good news, right? But why do I love it via, um, UPS trucks, right? What I really like is there's a guy that comes out of it carrying a package and leaves it on my doorstep because that package is actually what I want, right? It's the, maybe couldn't have gotten there without the vehicle, but frankly, I don't care if it's UPS or USPS, FedEx, Amazon, just get me the package. That's the cargo. Now, the Bible works exactly the same way. I, I understand why you might have a soft spot, you know, for those delivery trucks, but it isn't about the delivery truck. It's about what they carry. And the stories and the writings in the Bible are vehicles. They carry messages that we are supposed to receive. And I suppose it's hard to get the message without the vehicle, but, you know, it doesn't matter. It's still not about, it, about the vehicle. It's about the cargo. So, Often what happens, and I'm sure you've experienced this or heard it happening, that people get all distracted by the vehicle. They get all caught up on, did it really happen that way? I mean, is this really true? Are, are we, is, it, is this telling us what we're really supposed to do? I mean, rather than looking at what, what were they trying to tell us? What's, what is that story telling us about the world, about their relationship with it? With, you know, what, what, what is the cargo that's being carried by that vehicle? That can be really important. You know, so many times people get so stuck on that, and you've got to believe what it actually says. If not, you don't really believe in God or something. And all the energy is spent on the vehicle, and the package never even gets opened. That's a tragedy. So, example. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1, the story of creation. I talked about it at Easter, too. Happens in seven days, right? Now, that was written as prose. It was not a scientific journal entry. It is telling us all sorts of things about the nature of the world, our relatedness, God's connection to it, the order and the wonder of the world, the goodness and you know, what completion of the world. Did it mean for us to take away from it that the universe was created in seven 24-hour periods of time? Or it happened by God's fiat, God spoke, and therefore things just existed, like evolution is just a miscue on our part? No. <laughs> no. Remember, vehicle and cargo. Vehicle and cargo. Or those miracles in the New Testament that Jesus did. You can argue all day long whether they actually happened or not. And the only evidence you have are the words that are in this book that's 2,000 years old. So you can believe what you want, but the important thing is, what are those stories telling us, right? I'm not saying that the stories did happen or not. I'm not trying to come down and tell you that they didn't really happen or that they did happen. I'm telling you, that's the wrong question. What are we being told through those stories? Who is Jesus because of that? What is, what is his promise? What is happening there through all those sorts of things? That's the truth value in their communications. Let the vehicle go, hang on to the cargo. Okay, better questions. Vehicle and cargo, here's a third tool. 
Not all parts of the Bible are meant to be read the same way. It's kind of like the newspaper. Do you read the front page, the op-ed page, and the weather the same way? I hope not. I mean, they really take different skills, different ways, different approaches, different understandings with it. We just do that naturally. Now, I, I kind of want to make a general statement about the Bible that can't be exactly true, but I, but I think it helps make the point and helps, gives us the perspective of this tool. And this third tool is that, is that the Bible is basically composed of two different types of stuff. One is universal truths. Universal truths that we are to learn, we're supposed to absorb, and then apply into our lives. That's one piece. But most of it is composed of the applications of universal truths. In other words, these things that people felt are really, really true, and then how they lived out, what it, how to happen in their community, what, you, what were the stories, what were the things, how did they apply it to their lives, and so on. Now, our job with those is to try to understand what the larger, the deeper truth was that was behind those writings, behind those stories, understand what it meant to those people and what they did with it, and then start to think about, well, so what does that have to say about my life? What does that have to say about the world that we live in today? Now, universal truths, kind of a dangerous notion. You, back in 2019, we did a whole series called Small T Truth. I, if you're kind of batting that around, go back and listen to those. The truth is that truths are tricky. When you, when you consider the limits of our comprehension as human beings, when you think about the limits of the context of our comprehension and experience, when you think about the limits of our language to express universal truths, it, all of those things make our claims, any claims of a universal truth, kind of precarious. I mean, they're so dependent on so many things that we just see as the way it is, and it's not necessarily the way it is. But the Bible, nonetheless, does have places within it that give us glimpses of that, right? At least we see through the glass darkly, right? Uh, they tend to be a bit abstract, hard to hold in your hands, yet we know what they're pointing at, and our hearts resonate with it. A couple of examples. First John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. I mentioned that earlier. I think it comes pretty close. In the Hebrew Bible, the, the creed, the Hebrew creed, creedal statement, they call it the Shema. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. Or what about the message from Jesus that God is with us? Or um, a passage that many of you have heard at weddings, right? From 1 Corinthians 13, talking about what love is. And love being obviously a very culturally dependent sort of thing, but nonetheless seeming to get below the surface. And talking about things that at least to me feel kind of changeless. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful, arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That, that sounds pretty close to me. Pretty solid stuff. Y you know, a fun thing for yourself or in your groups, like what are some of the universal truths that you sort of feel come out of this book or maybe you found in other places where the word of God has seeped into your life. So that, that's the universal truth side. Then there's this, all this other stuff. When Samson slew a thousand people with the jawbone of a donkey, is that what you're supposed to do with your enemies? I personally have a hard time finding a jawbone of a donkey. I mean, I searched Fleet Farm the other day. Yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure. 
okay? When Paul gives advice about how the church should be run, what the leadership is supposed to be like, or what women's place is in the church or in society in general, how about the statement that humankind has created male and female? Were they prescribing there is no room for anything else? I mean, what does that have to say about the LGBTQ community, right? That's certainly been used there. Or maybe you read a psalm that is a song sung from the agony and the heartbreak of Israel. But the reaction and what they ask God for, and it just seems like something that we just can't go there. I mean, is it supposed to be the same for us? Was that universal truth? Or were they in their day and age wrestling with something that made sense to them? You know, is it saying what we're supposed to do in those situations? Or perhaps are we supposed to just hold this raw honesty and messiness that this book has and weep with those people? See them for the journey that they were on and wonder what those things look like in our lives and where we meet God in those places. So uh, this is a big one. I think it will, can be helpful to you many times as you read and try to deal with this book. But universal truths and the application of them. The distinction between them is very fuzzy. And we will never all agree of what belongs in which category. And that's okay. We don't need to. It means we live with this stuff. We work on it and try to wrestle with it together rather than find the answers and decide, you know, what is always right and what is always wrong. All right. Here's another tool. So this big, messy collection of writings that was compiled over a couple thousand years, it has an arc to it. It comprises a whole, meaning it has many parts within it that have sharp edges and some pretty gnarly innards. But taken all together, it seems to sort of create a whole. It's kind of like life, right? I mean, aren't you kind of like that? I'm kind of like that. Maybe that's why we call it the living word of God. I mean, just... You know, the ink on white pages, this is the dead word of God. The living word of God is when you read it, when you try to understand it, when you wrestle with it, when you try to live it out. That's the living word of God. Okay, so this tool that helps us keep the Bible in perspective is, is this. Use the whole to interpret the part, not the part to interpret the whole. All right, you get that? Take the whole, like get this big picture of what the Bible's trying to say and hold that when you read these parts and try to figure out what's going on rather than reading a little tiny piece and saying, well, that must be what the whole Bible is and use that as your lens, your filter to understand everything, All right? That is the definition of a sect, S-E-C-T, or a cult. They specialize in finding one verse, one word, one idea in the Bible and that becomes their lens and everything else gets read from that. And that's dangerous. You can make the Bible say almost anything that way. Just pick the verse when Jesus said, I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. And you take that as your lens, and you're going to read everything else by that, and imagine the religion you would create. I think it has been done. All right, so the larger message. The larger message that you find when you wrap your arms around this big, messy books, book, you know, it's something for each and, of, each and every one of us to try to figure out and to name. But... I would put it maybe something like this. The larger message is about a God, uh, a fabric of existence that relentlessly is trying to unite us, to make us one with itself and one with another and all of creation and, and makes us united in ourselves, you know, integrity and um, self-knowledge and character. 
and doing that in every way possible. Hold that and let that balance in those other parts. A parallel tool to that is to watch for the bigger message as well as the smaller point. So if you're reading a story about Jesus and what he did in one particular account, you might find that you read this, oh, I, I think I get this. You know, it's, uh, standing alone, it has a meaning. But maybe go, go back a couple of stories and start reading before and see if there wasn't something being set up all along. And then maybe even read a couple stories or a chapter or two beyond it and see what is there. You might find that, yes, there was this message when you just read it by itself, but actually the author was trying to do something much bigger. The people who wrote these books, they might have been writing on parchment with ink that they made by themselves. They may have lived a long, long time ago, but they weren't stupid. And, and when it was that hard to write, they didn't waste anything. I mean, they were building as much into that as they possibly could to get those messages across to us as powerfully as they possibly could. So if you're going to read the story of Nicodemus in the book of John, don't just read one. He shows up three times in that book. Read all three of them. See if you don't, like, discover, oh, there's something totally different being said with Nicodemus than I thought from just reading one. Or if you're reading the story of Abraham, one of my favorites, takes his son Isaac to the top of Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. Great story, right? It has a lot of meaning on its own, but see how that story reverberates until the very end of the Bible to understand what's really being said there. The bigger and the smaller. Or the details in the story. Notice how the pace on that story, it slows down, then quickens, and then slows down and quickens. And some very specific words are chosen. Yeah, Writing was arduous. They made every detail matter. What is there, what's missing, it's all clues. Now this asks you to do something that you might not like. It asks you to get to know the whole book, and that takes time and effort. But what if you learn to handle this book like a tool, like something that you've held in your hands since childhood? Think of the ability for it to speak with you and be in dialogue with your life. Now, to do that, you don't have to read all of it, at least certainly not all at once. You don't have to read it from cover to cover. In fact, I would recommend against that. It is not how it was um, written and meant to be read. But it does mean spending time with it. It means investing it. It means becoming fluent and familiar with it. And so that's a good thing to do. And I'm hoping this series will help you do that. And like I said, there's a few readings for you to try out each week that will also help. So last tool. This is short. This is easy. And it's also really important. And that is, if reading the Bible, or maybe hearing someone else's interpretation, what they are trying to tell you it means, if, that, if your reaction to that is fear, stop. Ask a different question. Ask a better question. Look at things differently and reevaluate the sources or the people who are steering you in a way that is creating that fear. Now, I really mean this. Now, it is true. Sacred readings cut us to the quick, right? I mean, they can make us feel remorseful or feel guilty, awaken all kinds of stuff within us, but they do it in order to build us up, not to tear us down. This book uses its power to bring us life and hope and second chances and forgiveness, not shame, not judgment, not punishment. And like I ended last week with on Easter, what is probably the most common phrase repeated in the Bible? 365 times, what is it? Do not be afraid. If that is the most common message in the Bible, don't you think it means something? And don't you think that if you read this and you're feeling fear that something is wrong? So check your reaction to that. So this book, you know that that is what Bible means, right? It's 
the word for Bible in Greek is biblos, so it's just the book, all right? But why I am really interested in each of us spending time with it is because it is dangerous. And I know sometimes, you know, I, boy, it just seems so dangerous. I almost hesitate to advise people to read it because it's just hard. But I'm looking for the other kind of dangerous for us. And the Bible is not something outside of you. It is a reflection of our lives. It's a reflection of your life. It's a reflection on my life. The, the people who put this together, they didn't know us. They couldn't have imagined our world and our lives. But they knew something. They experienced something in their world that was such a counter message to where they saw people drifting in ways that moved away from life and hope and love. And they wanted us to have that. And they knew at its center was this third strand, was that Yahweh. And they saw it lived in the person of Jesus. And they wanted to make sure that we would get that message too. So this book is a companion volume to your book, to your life. Read both of those books. And let them speak to each other. Let them be in dialogue with each other. That is the way it's meant to be. I want to close, it just seems appropriate, by reading um, a few verses from the very first psalm in the book of Psalms, which I think is maybe the Bible's reflection on its role with us. Let's listen to this. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of those who seek wrong or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the ways of Yahweh. And on Yahweh's word, they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all they do, they are fulfilled. When we bother to gather together to come to one place for this purpose of learning and growing, and I, I think we're doing it because we're honoring something bigger than ourselves. We're honoring that we are here not just on our own, our own quest, but there are others that are on this journey, not only the same journey, but the journey with us. And that we are part of something that is bigger than us, that is guiding us, that is with us, that is sharing this with us. So just let's take a moment and honor that. God, Yahweh, all that is, I am who I am. We thank you for still continuing not to be part of our lives and for us to have the honor to be part of you and part of each other's lives and sent out into this world to help bring your love, your hope, and your life to others. Each of us come with our joys and our burdens today. Let us not, let us not carry them ourselves, but share them with each other. May it be so. Thanks for listening. We hope these conversations are helpful and connective. You can find out more about Fabric at fabricmpls.com. There you can find notes from previous conversations and other resources for deepening your relationships with the threads of yourself, others, and that third strand we often call God. You can also find ways of connecting to a group, whether you're in the Twin Cities or not. You can join in supporting this community financially too. It's through the generous giving of people like you that Fabric is sustained. Again, that's fabricmpls.com. Thanks for being Fabric in your unique way.